Hey friends, hope you're doing all right today. Uh, glad you've joined me on Plain Spoken, where I'm trying to make sense out of what's happened in Methodism in America and globally. I'm a global Methodist elder in rural Oklahoma, as most of you know. If this is your first time watching or listening to me, I, I hope you find this useful. I try and make my way through a lot of the headlines that have to do with my tribe or denomination and in real time try and make sense of it. Uh, my worldview is, is generally conservative traditionalist. And uh, I find that that is an increasingly foreign worldview to a lot of people, and so I think it's hopefully helpful and necessary to talk about things from this perspective so that people of the world or uh, people who are in liberal churches can kind of understand how it is that uh, conservative traditionalists are not idiots or uh, uh, evil people, but that we, we have a genuinely different worldview as to how we see things. Today in the New York Times, there was a segment published called With a Deadline Looming, the United Methodist Church Breaks Up. This was written by a person who I'm, I'm pretty sure is outside of the Methodist fold, but just trying to understand what's going on uh, from the outside. Of course, I'm on the inside and have somewhat of a, a more historical uh, theological worldview, and so it's with that in mind that I wanted to turn to some reporting actually by a reporter named Liam Adams. Um, he writes for the Tennessean, and he had a Twitter thread that I wanted to walk through, and then I wanted to um, go through the New York Times article, look at some other things that have recently been published with just some raw numbers and stats. Actually, let's start with some raw numbers and stats. This is going to interest those of you who are interested in um, the overall disaffiliation numbers. Of course, paragraph 2553, was adopted in 2019 after the special called general conference adopted the traditionalist perspective and made a way out for those who could not uh in good conscience be a part of this body anymore now that it had chosen to be conservative this was adopted before it fully understood the unfunded pension liabilities and how that would all be calculated it was understood to be a very affordable very reasonable way out now, since then, um, especially in the last year, uh, things really proceeded in earnest uh, with disaffiliations. And one of the taglines that you saw being promoted was 25 by 24. That was 25%, a full quarter of churches were projected, projected to disaffiliate by the end of 2023, uh, the beginning of 2024. And so uh, it's remained to be seen, are there really that many churches interested in leaving the fold of the United Methodist Church. Uh, for liberal centrists, the question was, are there really that many homophobes in our midst? Um, but that really wasn't the question necessarily. It was, how many people in the United Methodist Church, how many churches in the United Methodist Church are very not happy, so unhappy with how the denomination is being run, that they're willing to go through a prolonged process and pay a lot of money to get loose so that they're not tied to this body anymore. And so I found three different people that, that calculated these numbers. And so let's, let's start with Liam, and then uh, we'll, we'll compare it to two other lists, one from within the United Methodist Church and one from outside. So, all right, so this is a map that, that he's published, and we'll go to the map here in a little bit, but the, the post that he, he uh, published on the 15th, says, as of last night, there are no more church disaffiliations out of the United Methodist Church before 2023 ends. The last year, churches can disaffiliate before uh, policy sunsets. A thread on big statistical takeaways also don't miss 
our map. And so we'll click on that map here in a minute. But he, he breaks down some helpful numbers. He says, per my analysis, total United Methodist disaffiliations between 2019 and 23 equals 7,512. In 2023, total disaffiliations were 5,505. And that's a 174% increase from the total disaffiliations in the previous four year four years combined. And he, he breaks down each year. Also this year, I maintained a thread. Well, I'm going to skip that one. So a couple notes on his data. One is that he only abides by 2553, not 2549. So that means that he excludes West Virginia and South Carolina, which refused to use 2553. So here's the year-by-year -year breakdown. 2019, there were 12 disaffiliations. 2020, there were 49 disaffiliations. In 2021, there were 119. So it goes up year by year, but 2022, it really shoots up to 1,827. And then this year, the total is 5,505. So you see the interest in getting out going up year by year. Of course, this was influenced by uh, the protocol the, the Feinberg resolution being drafted and people entertaining the possibility that there might be uh, a, a more amicable separation once liberal centrist leadership abandoned that protocol. That's when people started really running for the doors. So then he gives a state-by-state -state analysis, which in some ways is helpful, but in other ways is not helpful because um, our annual conference lines don't always correspond with state lines. There are many states that have two or even three annual conferences within its borders. But even so, he gives a breakdown where Texas is shown to be the biggest uh, source of disaffiliators. It has actually let's let's just go over to his map at this point, and you'll see my cursor. It'll hover over Texas, and it shows 750 disaffiliations. You can hover, he has it uh, color-coded. For those of you who are just listening, I'll, I'll describe what it is, but it shows the continental United States uh, map where state by state it has uh, the, the darkest colored ones have the most disaffiliations, the lightest colored ones have no disaffiliations. So you'll see South Carolina is white. Uh, that's not New Mexico. That's Arizona and Utah are completely white. No, no disaffiliations. But in every other state, there have been some disaffiliations. Of course, in many annual conferences, it was borderline impossible to get out. There were many bishops or boards of trustees that made it uh, really, really difficult to navigate the process. It was very hostile. Uh, some insisted that you could only get out if you held the liberal position theologically. Uh, some insisted on charging uh, the full or half of the real estate value of your church building so that's why a lot of people were quite confident that the disaffiliation numbers wouldn't turn out being nearly as high as they've turning, turned out. Uh, there was a lot uh, that went into disaffiliation. They just didn't think as many churches were fed up as they were. And of course, something I've said is that I, I think twice as many churches would have disaffiliated if there hadn't been such high strictures involved. I, I think, um, well, and I'll talk more about this here in a bit, but the reasons for it, is it just to do with human sexuality? Is it theological in nature? But if we go back to the map here, you'll see uh, something that a number of people have noticed. It's, it's primarily in the southeastern jurisdiction that uh, there have been heavy disaffiliations, but also southern central. And then in the northeast, uh, Pennsylvania's had quite a few. Ohio, of course, is divided between east and west and Indiana as well. 
So if we go back to Liam's thread, which by the way, I, I actually went back and forth with him a little bit this morning. I put in a request to do an interview with him. He said he's going to be publishing another piece in the Tennessean tomorrow on uh, some of the themes that he's seen. He's not a United Methodist or a Global Methodist, but he's been looking at this issue for a while and has a number of insights. So I'm going to see if I can't uh, record a conversation with him for our edification. So um, anyway, he went down the line of the different states and then the jurisdictions, which of course the southeastern jurisdiction was the heaviest disaffiliator with 3,682 disaffiliations followed by the south central and north central jurisdictions. So um, he, he has this final calculation where he says that 26% of the churches, let's see, sorry for the noise going on outside, we've got a children's group out there. So he takes the final calculation, total number of churches, 29,272 churches. That would have been at the end of 2018. I don't know where he gets that number. Um, but then he compares that to total that have disaffiliated and says that 26% of churches have left. Um, this fits, you know, the, different guys calculate this in different ways, but this fits. Here's the official denominational uh, resource from U UM News that, that tracked disaffiliations from 2019. They come up with the total value at the end of 7,659 churches, cumulative, disaffiliated. Um, and so I'll, I'll put the link to this if you want to compare those numbers. And so this one does include um, South Carolina. You'll see a star there. Uh, it includes South Carolina, and then West Virginia also has that star and is included. So different people calculate this in, in slightly different ways. There's a guy, Jimmy Boone, who had a running total as well that he uh, just recently posted on Friends Who Like the Global Methodist Church, and he had um, all of the, the disaffiliations from previous years noted at the top, and then he has all the totals from the special sessions this year. And at the bottom, he has his total for uh, disaffiliations this year, 5,642, which came to a total, I think he had it up at the top, at 7,662. So these are all in the same ballpark. And it's, once again, over 25% of churches have disaffiliated from the United Methodist Church. So that's pretty staggering considering... Um, you know, the United Methodist Church is not filled with early adopters. You know, uh, we're not the most online people. We're not the most uh, tech-savvy people. Most people in the United Methodist Church, it's just where they were born and raised and married. And um, it's just part of the the brand that they have associated with their spiritual lives for some time. So it's really amazing that this many churches, this many people were able to care strongly enough about affiliation at this point for fully a quarter of churches to disaffiliate. And then of course, um, a big question is, that's just total churches. How many of these churches are proportionally larger than average? Uh, because it's quite possible that even though a quarter of churches have left, I think it's possible that up to a half of all regular attenders are now gone. Uh, I, I'm of the mind, you know, we'll see where a lot of these larger outfits uh, come to in their conclusions. But uh, it seems pretty clear to me that larger attendance churches generally with higher frequency wanted to disaffiliate than smaller, rural, more impoverished churches that just couldn't even 
think about it, that are just, you know, kind of trying to get by. So at this point, I want to pivot and uh, go to the New York Times article. And, and of course, a number of people have already posted about this, but Talbot Davis had a post this morning, and uh, he was very kind to make this a gift article so that I could read it. He said, uh, interesting to see the United Methodist executives continuing to hold to false narrative that it's about power, control, and money. No, it's about biblical surrender, sexual restraint, and historic orthodoxy. So, of course, the New York Times has its worldview. I get their morning mailing, and they uh, they really do have um, a, a left-leaning agenda. So it, it's not exactly, a, I don't know, a sympathetic view that it gives, but they're more interested in just—well, they explain why they're they're interested in this topic. It's because it's the biggest schism our country has seen for some time, if ever— so the, the, the title of the article is With a Deadline Looming, the UMC Breaks Up, and then its synopsis is A Quarter of the Denomination's Churches Have Left as the Faith Divides Over LGBTQ Policies. So that's a, a picture of White's Chapel. With 17,000 members, White's Chapel Methodist Church in South Lake, Texas, offers multiple worship services each weekend, along with the kind of attractions that only the largest houses of worship can boast. It has a coffee shop, an indoor playground, a Christmas festival with pony rides and fireworks, and near-daily opportunities for volunteering and socializing. On Sunday mornings, a small white bulldog named Wesley, after the founder of Methodism, roams the campus with a handler greeting admirers. Quote, they called this place the biggest small church, said Linda Rutman, who was sitting with her husband near a sprawling holiday train set on a recent Sunday morning. The Rutans, uh, I think I called her Rutman, Rutan is her last name. They've attended White's Chapel since they moved to Texas from California in 2022. It's so friendly, she said. You don't feel like it's a huge church. Until July, White's Chapel was the second largest United Methodist congregation in the country. So I, I was curious. I, I everybody knows that the biggest church was Church of the Resurrection, is Church of the Resurrection in Leewood, Kansas, pastored by Adam Hamilton. Um, I didn't know that number two was there, but recently GCFA put out um, a page that you should see on your screen. It's it's probably too small for you to read, but it's a list of the top 100 largest churches by attendance um, in 2020. Yeah, 2020 top 100 churches by attendance, it says. So you'll see that in-person attendance for some of these was super low, but remember, COVID was going on, so it figures in in-person and online worship attendance. And the biggest church in the country in 2020 was not, I mean, by attendance, it was not um, the Church of the Resurrection. It was Mulberry Street Church in South Georgia, uh, which had a total attendance of 76,684 on average, every week, if you can imagine such a thing. I cannot. So Church of the Resurrection is actually number three on this one with a total attendance of forty, a little more than 43,000. And then this one that we were just reading about, White's Chapel, is like number 10 or 11 or 12 on this in Fort Worth, and it had a total attendance of 14,000, more than 14,000. So I just found that interesting by attendance, you know, and I do think attendance matters quite a bit. Um, even so, you know, 14,000 is, is nothing to disrespect. But according to the membership metrics that uh, New York Times article was using here, they were number two. 
So back into the article, the conservative-leaning church lost its status as the second biggest United Methodist Church this year, not because it shrank, its growing leaders say, but because it left the denomination. America's second largest Protestant denomination is in the final stages of a slow-motion rupture that has so far seen the departure of a quarter of the nation's roughly 30,000 United Methodist churches, according to the denomination's news agency. Now, I would correct this. To say that we're in the final stages is not quite correct. We, it is right to say that paragraph 2553 is sunsetting and nobody can exit under that provision anymore. But as I've talked about here, there have been a number of bishops that have said that they were going to use paragraph 2549 indefinitely to close churches and sell them back to congregations that don't want to be part of the United Methodist Church anymore. So to say that things are wrapping up is not really accurate. Um, there are a number of churches that are going to continue to be anxious about staying in the United Methodist Church. And if, if I'm right and the United Methodist Church continues to make uh, virtue signals towards the left and be a part of the cultural left, there are a good, you know, another half of the denomination uh, of churches that don't really want to be a part of that and will seek their way out. So it would be one thing if the denomination's leadership had been much more open to letting churches leave that didn't want to be a part of it. But of late, a lot of leadership, not just bishops, but even like uh, centrist groups have been saying, no, no more disaffiliations, no more of this. There have been regular efforts to squelch the voices of those who are not happy and want to leave. And those people don't just go away. You know, some of them do, but a lot of them stay. A lot of them dig in, especially if they're in a majority conservative church. If they had let these churches go, yeah, maybe we could say that this is wrapping up, but they didn't. They, they entrapped a ton of churches. Um, even when you look at Alabama, West Florida recently, they let some out until they saw how many were running for the door, and then they just closed the doors. So, and this is, this is, I would say half of the conferences did things like this to keep unhappy churches in. So uh, ra wrapping that thought up, it's just not right to say that things are wrapping up on disaffiliation. They're going to continue to be hundreds of congregations, big and small, that agitate to get out um, starting in 2024 as the doors have now closed, will have now closed. Back to the Times article. At issue for Methodists is the question of ordaining and marrying LGBTQ per people, a topic that has splintered many other Protestant denominations in which Methodists have been debating for years. Oh, let me just take a quick break for a second just to acknowledge this is very America-heavy um, in the, the conversation here, and that's partly because Americans are very selfish and self-centered and we forget the rest of the world exists, but it's also partly because the United Methodist Church refused to let 2553 be applied to any churches or conferences outside of the United States in something that looks very much like racism, but uh, to the United Methodist Church for some reason doesn't look like racism. Um, so anyway, this is, this is a conversation, a topic very much limited to the American context. There have been a few uh, non-American conferences or churches that just left and busted out and said, what are you going to do? But uh, a ton are riding on the next general conference next year to see what happens, and that's why this regionalization stuff matters. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, subscribe to the channel. I'm going to be covering that quite a bit because uh, uh, it matters. All right, back to the article. 
In 2019, Methodist leaders opened a window for any congregations to leave over reasons of conscience, um, in most cases allowing them to take their property and assets with them in a clean break if they received approval to depart by the end of the year. Many conservative congregations have done just that. Here's the key quote. It's the biggest denominational schism ever said Ryan Burge, a political scientist at Eastern Illinois University. That's quite a statement. That is quite a statement. There were 8 million Methodists in the United States, United Methodists in the United States in 2020, according to the U.S. religion census. Between large-scale departures and the broader trend of decline, Dr. Burge said that number could drop by half in a decade. I wouldn't be surprised if that number has been cut in half by the end of next year. I think a decade is is too conservative. The Exodus marks a calamitous decline for the broader tradition of mainline Protestantism, which once dominated the American religious, social, and cultural landscape. So I, uh, I, the the article goes on, but I don't want to risk uh, any kind of copyright violation. I don't want to really get into it with New York Times saying, "Hey, fair use." So I, I would advocate going ahead and reading the article. And of course, um, they do interview Bishop Tom Bickerton, who later says uh, this was primarily about churches wanting their own property and wanting control. And of course, uh, Talbot Davis took issue with that, and he said, "No, it's primarily about biblical faithfulness." I think it's a both-and thing, you know, uh, and it's hard to say how much those two things, you know, institutional fidelity versus theological fidelity, how much uh, weighed into each individual church's decision. I, You know, I've talked about St. Luke's here in Oklahoma City that leans left, but they were just clear the United Methodist Church is a more abundant sclerotic organization that you'd have to be a fool to belong to. So they got rid, they got out for that reason generally. Uh, but there are a lot of churches that theologically, you know, my two little churches I serve, just realize theologically, culturally, United Methodist Church hated them, <laughs> you know, was using their money against them, and that's why they wanted out. So, um, you know, and that's that's pretty common. You know, both reasons are quite common, and to you can make either sound really bad. You can make it sound like it's just a bunch of homophobes that wanted to get loose, or you can make it sound like it's a bunch of selfish people that just liked control over their own stuff. You can, you can make fun of anything or portray anything in a negative light, but when you're looking at things from either perspective, the United Methodist Church is an organization worth being very concerned about. The, the general reflection I have after looking at, at all this is um, it's not, I don't have a new thing to say, but one of the things that I've said multiple times is how disappointed I am in United Methodist leadership to reckon with what's happened so far. I still haven't heard uh, any voices in United Methodist leadership just saying, you know, we really did um, abuse the authority given us. We really did neglect to keep in check um, a bureaucracy that that ran amok and a leadership that that refused to match the the clear expressed uh, loyalties uh, of people on the ground expressed in the general conference. I have yet to, to hear anybody in United Methodist leadership acknowledge that there was a betrayal of trust and that many who want to leave uh, have good reason for doing so. So it's just one of these things where um, the new reflection I had today was there are people who've tried to position themselves in the center in the United Methodist Church who say, you know, this is not a cultural war issue. 
we we don't map on to this left-right thing. There's just Jesus, and Jesus isn't left or right. But I, I think that that fundamentally misunderstands what's taken place and makes it so that in the present moment, there are so many people that really just cannot comprehend what's happened. The right-left paradigm doesn't correspond with the Democrat-Republican thing. It corresponds with the disposition towards inherited, received knowledge and wisdom. Are you generally suspicious of what we've inherited, or are you generally trusting of what we've inherited? And, and conservatives trust the consensual tradition handed down through the ages, whereas liberals generally don't trust that stuff and are much more open to questioning it themselves and being in relationship with other people who question and reject those those traditional things. So this this rejection of a left-right thing has made it so that that both sides seem quite unreasonable when in reality both left and right sides are more legitimate I think than some kind of middle ground that speaks past everybody. I think there are people wanting to do not just very differently, different things in the United Methodist Church, but fundamentally opposed things in the United Methodist Church. They're talking about two different Jesuses, two different uh, kinds of discipleship, uh, two different worldviews of what we're aiming at. What does the kingdom look like? And to continue to, to have these diametrically opposed people all in the same place, using the same words, but mean, meaning very different things by them, that is the definition of misery, as as many of us found out. So what we're seeing right now is actually a good thing. You know, it's really disheartening and, and um, discouraging for many people to see, but this is what it looks like whenever you try to marry truth to a lie or pass off something bad as good. The reality is that the church is supposed to be of one heart and mind, speaking with one voice, and whenever we allow for a not just a duplicity, but a multiplicity of uh, theological identities within the same tent that are mutually exclusive, we're really lucky that we haven't seen violence in America. Uh, and we, There has been violence in Africa. There has been violence in other parts of the world around these theological differences. And if they don't let these parts of the churches go, there is going to be continued violence in these places as they try to navigate um, sharing stuff and sharing power and, and who gets what. So the, the continued prayers as we look at this stuff uh, is that, that the United Methodist Church doesn't close this door and go, oh, it's over, you know, but that they understand that there has been a rupture in trust and fidelity and that they need to continue to make a way out for those who can no longer feel good about this. Otherwise, there will be a lot more heartache down the line. And I don't want that. I don't think anybody wants that. So continued prayers for the United Methodist Church, especially as they are looking at seriously adopting legislation that is on its face, uh, racist at next year's general conference so that they don't have to deal with uh, voices that make them uncomfortable. And uh, prayers for the Global Methodist Church and those who have left. There's a temptation that people have once they get clear of a situation just not to care about it anymore. But this is a situation that still very much impacts millions of people millions of dollars, um, and the name of Christ Jesus and the heritage of Methodism across the world, and those are things that I care about and you should too. So I'd invite you to continue to be in prayer uh, for all the people touched by this. Um, 
And I guess that's the closing reflection for today. So I hope you've learned something. I hope you've benefited from spending this time with me. Um, if there's any uh, additional feedback, always remember you can leave it in the comments. As long as it's respectful, I'll engage you and, and uh, be glad to have it. You can also privately email me at plainspokenpod at gmail.com. If you decided that what I'm doing here is good and you want to support me, you can go to plainspoken.locals.com and become a supporter. Um, I'm very encouraged by the way that a lot of people have received me. So I want to thank you if you have been a supporter, and I hope you uh, uh, are excited about what's coming. There's a lot of good stuff coming. So I'll, uh, I'll end that here today, and, and God bless you. I'll see you soon.